0: If you would join me in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4 is where we are going to be this morning. Once you find Revelation chapter 4, then I want you to turn to the person on your right and then to the person on your left, and I want you to ask them this question, what are you doing? Ask them the question, what are you doing? What do people do when things get difficult? What do you do when things get difficult? Last Sunday was Easter Sunday, and Andrea and my girls were blessed to be serving in living kids last Sunday morning. And if you've ever served in a church nursery or living kids, then then you know that that point of drop-off can be difficult, right? It can be difficult for moms and dads, but especially for the little ones who are being dropped off, right? And they told me last Sunday, it was the cutest little story. They said one mom went to drop off her little guy, and, you know, he was crying and, and different things. And so they, she ended up just leaving him there, and he walks to the middle of the room in the carpet and just sprawls out flat, right? Just flat, puts his head in his arms like this, like the world, his world has just ended, or like he needs to take a minute, and he just starts crying. Right there, you know, and, and that's, I mean, that's just was his way of dealing with the difficulty, right? Some, some of us, you know, we deal with the way we deal with difficult things, we cry, right? Whatever it might be. I want you to take a moment with the people around you, um, in front of you or behind you as well, and, and just talk about what are some of the different things people do when things get difficult? Take a minute, right? Where the people near you discuss, what are some of the things that people do when things get difficult? All right, so share with me. Let's just share together, learn together this morning. What are some of the things that people might do when things get difficult? The question I want us to ask and and answer this morning is, what should we as God's people do when things get difficult? What should we do? If Revelation chapter 1 is God unveiling for his people, what we should be looking for In times of persecution, suffering, pain, even spiritual complacency and compromise, if if Revelation chapter 1 is God unveiling for us what we should be looking for, I think Revelation chapter 4 is God unveiling for us what we should do or what we should be looking forward to doing when times are difficult. Now, to do a quick little recap, Revelation chapter 1, we've already studied that for the past couple Sundays together, and and it's just God unveiling. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, God unveiling for his people, reminding them, hey, you need to be looking for Jesus. And and that's exactly what God shows John in that revelation, this risen, glorified King Jesus. And then if you read chapters 2 and 3, you have this king who writes personal letters to Um, seven regions of churches. And you would find these regions or churches in what is modern-day Turkey today, and John sees this vision while he's um, isolated or been banished on this island of Patmos. And so Jesus writes these letters to these seven regions of churches, and each letter has the same structure. Jesus starts out first with a description of himself. Then he gives kind of a diagnosis of the church. Then he gives directives to the church and then he reminds them of their drive to overcome. So in each of the letters that Jesus writes these churches, he gives them a description of himself, a diagnosis of the church, directives that he wants them to to follow up on and take, and then reminds them of their drive to overcome. Now, we spent about a year and a half ago, we did some teaching on these seven letters, so we're not going to spend time in those seven letters in, in this teaching. You can go to the church website, and you can look up seven letters, and you can listen to the different teachings um, on those seven churches, or the seven letters to the seven churches. Where we want to jump into today is in Revelation chapter 4, as we continue unpacking this revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, any Blue's Clues fans? All right, Blue's Clues fans. I'm gonna, you know, what, what would they sing? What would Blue, like, what would they sing when a letter, when they wanted to open a letter? Sing it out. Come on, if you know, we just got a... We just got a letter. We just got a letter. I wonder who it's from, right? So, Revelation chapter 4, I think where it comes in, where it's placed in the book of Revelation is really, really important. Because, as I said, Jesus writes these letters to these churches. And in these letters, he affirms the church. But he has some pretty strong, harsh rebuke for the church as well. And, and so I want you to imagine that your house church pastor, Pastor Jeremy, Pastor Kyle, Pastor Jason, Pastor A, myself, let's say that they send out a little message and say, hey, Jesus has written our house church a letter. And this Friday or this Tuesday or this Sunday morning, we're going to read this letter, what Jesus has to say to our house church. And everyone shows up for the first time in the history of your house church, right? And so they come and, and you're sitting around and you're like, we just got a letter, we just got a lit, right? And you're kind of excited. To, what does Jesus have to say to our house church? And so Pastor Jeremy or Kyle, or whatever, they, they, you know, open up the letter and they start reading. And as you begin to hear what Jesus has to say to you, the church, you're like, oh, those are some nice things. Until he says, y'all are spiritually dead. And you're actually so messed up spiritually and you look so much like the culture that I throw up in my mouth. Right, or you're just like completely complacent, and I mean, after a while, you'd be like, "Oh, uh, thank you, Jesus," right? And you'd kind of be like, "How how would you be feeling like after you read this letter? I don't know about you, but I'd be feeling like I' sick to my stomach." Right, and this is not just a letter from your house church pastor. This is a letter from King Jesus. Right, and and we know that here's John been banished to this island, and now we know that the church is kind of just a spiritual mess when all this is going on. And so, you know, if you've ever, if someone comes up to you and they compliment you, but in the same breath, they kind of rebuke you, what do you tend to remember? If you're like me, all I remember is the negative. That's all I, all, all I will remember is the negative. So you can imagine kind of how God's people are feeling after reading these letters. They're like, ooh, okay. And maybe they're wondering, okay, so this Jesus that we're supposed to follow just ripped us apart. I mean, he just kind of, so you can kind of maybe feel what they're feeling and like, I don't know, quit. Someone said, maybe we should just quit following this Jesus guy. And so all kinds of emotions and feelings I think the church is having as they come away from reading these letters from Jesus And I think God knows that at this point, his people might be struggling again. And so what does he do? He gives them chapter four. What's in chapter four? The throne room of the heavenly palace. The throne room of the heavenly palace. And so imagine what you're feeling in this moment and what does God do? He says, let's let's look at heaven again. Let me me show you the throne room of heaven. And so in chapter one, right, we, we see that God unveils for his people what they should be looking for in those moments of difficulty and struggle and persecution and complacency. I think here in chapter four, he unveils for us what we should be doing. And in fact, even more so what we have to look forward to And so let's unpack Revelation chapter 4 together. John says in verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, that voice that he heard back in chapter 1, in that vision he says, Which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So again, we kind of want to use our imaginations here and imagine that the book of Revelation is this drama. The curtain now has been opened. God's pulled open the curtain. And in chapter one, God unveils Jesus, the risen, exalted king. Get your eyes on Jesus. And then here in chapter four, that same voice is speaking to John and he says, come up, come up here. Come and see. One of Jesus' favorite things to say to people, come up here. Come, come and see. And so there's this door, and it's standing open. And so John just gets to walk in, and, he, and what's he see? It tells us, right? He sees this throne in verse 2. He sees a throne. He says, this voice that's speaking to me. And it says in verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit. Now, why is that important? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us that it's impossible for you, for me, to understand anything about God himself apart from the Spirit. Only the Spirit is capable of unraveling for us the meaning and and, and who God is and the things of God. And so absolutely, John has to be in the Spirit because only the Spirit can reveal these things to John. And so he says that he's in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on. On the throne. So, John, this door is open, and what he sees is he sees someone sitting on this throne. Now, the difference between what John saw in chapter one and what John is going to see here in chapter four is that in chapter one, John describes, spends a lot of time describing the person sitting on the throne. In this vision, John is going to spend more time describing what's happening around the throne. And so, John is, 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 lifted up and able to see the wonder of heaven's throne room. And that's what he's seeing, the wonder of heaven's throne. And and so he sees a person seated on it. Verse 3, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So here's the person sitting there, and John is seeing this, and like, wow, as. He doesn't take time to really describe the person sitting there. We've, he's already done that in chapter one, but he describes like these, these, these colors of gemstones that are radiating off the throne, and, and he talks about jasper. Now, jasper seems to have like this, this crystal-like or diamond-like light or transparent hue to it. And it's actually in Revelation chapter 21, it's, jasper's also mentioned as one of the gemstones that describes the glory of God coming out of the new city. And so this gemstone of Jasper, we see not only here in chapter 4, but radiating off of the holy city that's going to come down that we read about in Revelation chapter 21. And so you have this Jasper kind of gem that's like this diamond-like, this crystal-like kind of light, they say. And then you have carnelian, which is a, another rare, expensive gem, which kind of has this blood-red color to it. And, and John says that that's what's coming off the throne he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. So coming off the person that's sitting on this throne is like this diamond-like light and this red blood kind of light that's just like this, just gazing, just radiating off of this thing. And then he talks about a rainbow, right? A, A rainbow that was around the throne that had the appearance of an emerald. So combining all those colors so you have emerald which is green and then you have this carnelian which is like this red color and then you have this this jasper like crystal kind of diamond like that's just um, that's coming off the throne and John is seeing all of this so there's this brilliant color that's just, just he's mesmerized by it and then he talks about a rainbow now if you read this and you see this rainbow where might your mind go to Help me. Where? After the flood, right? Absolutely. Your mind would, I think, immediately go to another rainbow mentioned in in the history of God's people back in Genesis 9. But even prior to going all the way back there, the prophet Ezekiel also had a very similar vision to what John sees here. Remember how we talked about the Old Testament is really going to help us understand this New Testament book? This is an example of it. So I want to take you back to the prophet Ezekiel. Go to Ezekiel chapter 1. Because Ezekiel sees a very similar vision to what John is seeing here in Revelation chapter 4. Ezekiel chapter 1. And we'll begin in verse 26. It says, And above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. Ezekiel chapter one, now beginning verse 27. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what... Had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. And then Ezekiel's going to help us understand what not only he is seeing, but what John is seeing in Revelation 4. Such was the appearance of the likeness of what? The glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice. Of one speaking. So in verse 28, Ezekiel tells us exactly, not only what he's seeing, but what John is experiencing. He's experiencing the radiant glory of God himself. Right? It's like he gets this privilege of like seeing, like walking into, not, not a replica of the throne room, but the actual throne room. As a kid, you ever like, or you're Maybe your kids read you know books about planes or, or fire trucks, and they see these in pictures. And then maybe you take them to the Air Force Museum in Dayton, and they actually get to walk into the plane and maybe walk into the cockpit. You're like, what? They're mesmerized, right? They're, it's crazy. Like this is no longer just like something I read about in a book. I'm actually experiencing this this real plane or or, or a fire truck. I get to sit in there and. and I think it's something similar, like this wonder that John is experiencing. He's not seeing a replica of the heavenly palace and the throne room in the heavenly palace. He's seeing it for real. And I think the rainbow then would remind us again of God's judgment from the flood, but also God's covenant with his people at the flood. What was the promise? Was his promise that he will never judge the world again? No, the promise was this, was this, I will never judge the world again with a flood, with water. And so I think when John sees this rainbow, he's reminded of that covenant promise that God made with his people, that I will never, I'm, I'm going to judge again, and how do we know that? Because the chapters 6 through 19 is John seeing God's judgment. And I love that he sees this rainbow here because I think in his mind he's being reminded of God's covenant love for his people and God's promise to himself and to his people. That God's justice is driven by his promises. That God's justice is controlled by his word, by his covenant love for his people. Because God is going to judge the world again. But the next time, 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us it will be by fire. And so I love that God reminds us that, yes, I'm going to judge again the the world and its rebellion and its rejection of me, but I'm going to keep my promise in doing so. That my justice, even my justice is controlled by my nature and by my promises and by my character. And then we go on, if you skip verse four of Revelation chapter four and look at verse five. He sees this, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Can you remember a time in, God, in the history of God's people where they saw something similar to this? Can you think of Mount Sinai? When God has just rescued his people from Egypt from 400 years of slavery And God says, listen, I want to meet with my people. I'm going to show up on this mountain. And if you read Exodus chapter 19, you see the very same things happening there that we see John seeing. Thunder, lightning, fire. That's what happens when the presence of God is near. And so I think when you take what Ezekiel sees and he sees these these images of of jewels and this rainbow. And then you talk about the the covenant of of the flood and, and all of that. I think... What, what we're seeing here is that there's not to be any doubt where John is. That he is in the presence of God himself. That he is in the heavenly palace, in the throne room. And I was thinking about that this week. And I was like, guys, this is your future. John is seeing your future, if you know Jesus. <laughs> He's seeing what you're one day going to get to see. I think that's Amazing that what we just read in this description, you too one day will get to see that and experience the wonder of the throne room. And it's almost as if I wonder if God's like, to the churches then and to us today, he's like, listen, your anticipated future should impact how you live now. It should show you that Jesus is worth following even when when it's difficult. Like, anybody taking a vacation this summer? right? You're taking vacation or even some kind of trip. You take a trip, let's say, to the beach or maybe camping or a cruise or whatever it might be, and you know it's coming. What do you typically do before you actually go on the trip? If you're going to the beach a couple months out, you stop eating as many sweets as maybe you're trying to get that beach bod ready, right? Or you go, you know, online shopping for a new bathing suit, that kind of stuff, right? Like you're anticipating this future that's coming, and so it's impacting how you're living in the present. Or you're going camping, Right? And you, you'd like, you know couple of months out, you're like trying to gather your supplies together, you clean off the tent, you wash it from the stink of sweat from last summer, you know, all that stuff, or you're going on a cruise and you're like planning your excursions and all these things you're going to get to do, right? The impact of your, or the anticipation of your future should impact, and it does impact how you live now. And I think that's part of the reason for why God is unveiling to John and to the church their anticipated future of what they're going to be doing, because when you get a vision of what you're going to be doing and who you're going to be doing it for and who you're going to get to see. It should change how you live now. The anticipated future of seeing what John sees should impact the choices you make as a follower of Jesus. So in the middle of their mess and their uncertainty and their persecution, God unveils for John and for us the wonder of heaven's throne. And then John gets to see the worshipers around the throne. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So, around this throne, imagine like 24 other thrones. And there's a group of people called the elders who are sitting on those thrones. Well, who are those elders? I don't think they're angels. I don't think those elders are angels, and here's why. Because it says they're wearing, what, white garments, and, and they have crowns on their heads. And we never see angels wearing crowns, but we do see followers of Jesus wearing crowns. In James chapter 1, verse 12, we're told that he who endures the trial will receive the crown of life. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I believe, he says, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, and laid out for me is the crown of righteousness, not just for me, but everyone who looks forward to the appearing of Jesus. So we don't see angels ever wearing crowns, but we do see God's people wearing crowns. And I think these are literal crowns because later we're going to see in Revelation chapter 4, these same elders lay these crowns at the feet of the person on the throne. And so I don't think they're angels because of the crowns that they're wearing. I also don't think they're angels because each one of them has a throne. And we never read of angels reigning with the king, but we do read of Christians, followers of Jesus, reigning with the king. I think it's 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, If we endure, we will reign with him. We're talking, it's mentioned in Romans chapter 8 that we're joint heirs with Jesus. And actually Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that Christians will judge and rule over angels. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So again, I don't think that the 24 elders are angels because they're wearing the crowns. They each have a throne. But especially because of what they sing in Revelation chapter 5. And look at this. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. And talking about the 24 elders who are falling down before the Lamb, verse 8. And in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 5, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, which we sang about worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, when it says for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people literally that should read us you ransomed us that's the tense that that, that is written in so here's the elders talk about them, themselves saying we were ransomed we needed forgiveness we've received the justification for our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ so i When you take the crowns, when you take the thrones, and you take what they're saying and shouting and and singing there in Revelation chapter 5, I think these 24 elders are intended to represent God's people, followers of Jesus. And so here's John ushered into the wonder of the throne room of heaven's palace, and now he sees the worshipers around the throne. And who's worshiping around the throne? God's people are worshiping around the throne. But that's not all he sees. Verse 6. And before the throne, there was it were a sea of glass like crystal and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind the first living creature, like a lion, the second living creature, like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. Can you imagine just use your imagination for a moment and you're like ushered into this and you're seeing this. Can you imagine seeing those creatures? Crazy. it be insane. And so John is seeing these 24 elders around the throne, and then he sees these like four bizarre-looking creatures. What are they? What are these four living creatures? Well, the Old Testament is going to help us understand this New Testament book. Go to Ezekiel chapter 10, because Ezekiel sees something very similar when it comes to these living creatures. Ezekiel chapter 10. We won't take time to look at chapter 1 of Ezekiel, but Ezekiel sees something almost identical to those four living creatures John sees. But in Ezekiel chapter 10, he describes and I think tells us what they are. Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 20. He says, these were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Kebar Canal, and I knew that they were what? Cherubim. Each had four faces, and each four wings, and underneath their wings the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen, which he talks about in chapter 1. Each one of them went straight forward. So Ezekiel describes these four living creatures as cherubim, and cherubim are are angel-like creatures. Now, when God told Moses to make the tabernacle and the temple, and he told him to make the Ark of the Covenant, what? beings did he tell them to create on top of the Ark of the Covenant? And their wings are like this above. Them. You know what they are? They're, they're cherubim. What beings did God instruct those who were making the veil or the curtains of the temple? What, what beings did he tell them, I want you to like stitch in the images of these beings? What were they? They were cherubim, Exodus 25 and 26. And so everything that we read about in the Old Testament, that the people were walking into the temple and seeing the cherubim and all the, the, these, these images, they're meant to point you to look upward. That's happening for real in the heavenly palace. Like now, people. Like now. What, what we're seeing is going on now in heaven's throne, in the room, in the throne room. And so... I, th- I think what, he- what what John is seeing is not some copy of heaven's throne room. He's in the real place, seeing the real thing. And even, even Hebrews chapter 8, 5 tells us that the temple, they were just copies of the heavenly things. right? I mean, have you ever been to Grand Canyon? I remember my first time going to the Grand Canyon. Within in college, and up to that point, I'd heard stories about the Grand Canyon, seen picture of the, uh, pictures of the Grand Canyon, but that moment when we walked out, and you're standing on the edge of that, and you're just seeing the vastness. There's nothing that can describe the Grand Canyon. No picture could ever do it justice, and that's what's happening here. John is not seeing a picture. I mean, he, he's seeing, he's experiencing, he's seeing what is going on in heaven, He's seeing the wonder of the throne. And not only is he seeing the the wonder of the throne, he is seeing the worshipers around the throne. Worship around the throne. And so each of these creatures, they have faces, right? What are the faces? Lion, ox, human, and eagle, right? What do those mean? I have no idea. I don't, and a lot of people have no idea. There's a lot of different theories on what those four creatures maybe represent. Some think they represent how Jesus is described in the four Gospels. Like Matthew talks about Jesus as the King, so you have this lion. Mark talks about Jesus as the humble servant, that's why you have the ox. Uh, Luke talks about him being the Son of Man, so you have the man. And uh, John he's talked about the Son of God coming from heaven, so like an eagle flying. In the sky. I don't know. It's a nice theory. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what those four, what the faces represent. But I do know where they are. And I do know what they're doing. We don't, we're never told what these, what these four creatures mean. And I'm okay with that. God never tells us. And we need to be okay with that. We need to be careful to assign meaning to something that God never assigns meaning to. And if you tell, it doesn't tell us exactly what these four faces mean, I'm okay with not knowing. If God wanted me to know, he would tell me. He would tell us in his word, but he doesn't. But what we do see are these creatures around the throne. And and I want to say something here. I think all this can be incredibly fascinating, right? And what we're seeing, what John is seeing around the throne, but we need to be careful not to get too caught up in all the beauty and miss what they're doing. We need to be careful not to get too caught up in assigning every little detail a meaning unless God gives us the meaning and and tells us what the meaning is and miss what they're doing. So so John gets to see the wonder of heaven's palace and the throne room. He gets to see the worshipers around the throne and then he experiences the worship in verses eight, nine, and 11. And the four living creatures, verse eight, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and who was and is to come. What's the focus of their worship? Is it what God has done? It's who He is. The focus of their worship is on the character and nature of who God is. And I think that's really important. I was listening to a podcast this week called Knowing Faith, which I highly encourage, Knowing Faith, and they were interviewing um, Jackie Hill Perry. Some of you may recognize that name. Jackie Hill Perry is a hip-hop artist, poet, Bible teacher, um, conference speaker, author, and she's written a new book called Holier Than Thou. And they were interviewing Jackie Hill Perry, and they said, "What, what led you to write this book, Holier Than Thou, when there's so many books on the holiness of God? And she said, you know, I wanted to write this book because the more I began to gaze into the holiness of God, the more I realized that it's God's holiness that is a reason for following him. And they're like, really? And she's like, yeah. And she said, a lot of people would say, that's the reason why I don't want to follow him. But she's like, no, 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 I think it's because as I begin to unpack this, I begin to realize that if God is holy, then that means he can never sin. And if it means he can never sin, that he will never sin against me. He will never do me wrong. And so if he will never do me wrong, then I can always trust him. He is worth trusting no matter what happens. And she said, it's because of who God is that he does what he does. The reason we have redemption and forgiveness flows out of his nature and his character. And I love this because John is seeing this. What's going on in John's life at the moment? He's banished on an island, probably starving to death, and you know running for his life from the other prisoners that are on that island. I mean, his life is crazy. The threat of death is always around him. The church—what's going? There's persecution. There's complacency. There's all this stuff, and it's as if God allows the church to see that this Jesus, who you say you follow, is worth following, even if he doesn't change your circumstance. Even if things get worse, he is still worth following. He's that good. Because everything flows out of his character, his holiness. And so they're worshiping day and night never ceasing to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And then verse nine, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So you have these four living creatures that are just worshiping nonstop holy, holy, holy. And then while that's going on, the representatives of God's people, they're screaming out and saying, God, you are worthy of worship. Why? Because you created us. The only reason you are breathing right now, the only reason why you're in this room is because God has deemed it so. You are here because he wants you to be here and he's made you and he made you with a purpose. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. They're saying, God, we, you are worthy of our worship because you made us. You desired to make us, and you made us to worship. And so what John is seeing these people doing is exactly what they were created to be doing, worshiping the king. You were created to worship Jesus. And actually the word worship there has this idea of like an own, or a, a servant like kind of kissing the master's hand or a dog licking their owner's hand. Anybody have Dogs. I mean, we'll be, I'll be sitting on the couch, right, in our little long-haired dachshund Tebow. Like, I'll we'll be sitting there watching something, and he'll just start licking my hand. It's gross. Like, some of our family members are totally cool with it. I'm not. I just think it's gross. And I'm just like, whatever. But you know why dogs do that? They say it's a sign of affection, attachment, and even submission and surrender. And so when it says these, these 24 elders are worshiping, they are attaching themselves to the king. They've given their affection to the king, and they are committed to living lives of surrender to this king because of who the king is. Listen, you are living out your created purpose most when you are worshiping Jesus in a life of surrendered obedience to him. Listen, there's a lot of talk right now about the best version of yourself. Listen. Any best version of yourself that doesn't end with you worshiping at the feet of Jesus is a lie. And it will not satisfy because you were created to worship Jesus. That is the best version of you. That is the best version of your neighbor. That is the best version of your friends. That is the best version of your coworkers, of your kids, of your family members. The best version that you want for them is that broken person because of their sin to be repentant of their sin and to come into a living relationship with Jesus and to fall at his feet recognizing who he is and live a life of worship. Tim, that is the best version of you, the friends, your house church. That's the best version. Anything other than that is a lie. You were made to worship Jesus. Made to worship Him. And so in chapter one, God unveils how, in a time of uncertainty, persecution, what you should be looking for. In chapter four, He tells you what you should be doing in those times worship. You worship Jesus. So, what are you doing? Awesome band to come. What are you doing? What do you do when your relationship with God grows cold and stale? Worship Jesus. Does he have your affection? Does Jesus have your surrender? What do you do when you experience relationship heartache? You worship Jesus. What do you do when you experience persecution? You worship Jesus. What do you do when you're struggling to believe God and his word? You worship Jesus. What do you do when you feel isolated, abandoned, alone? You look to heaven and you worship Jesus. What do you do when you're not sure what to do next? Worship Jesus. What do you, when you long for God to bring justice to a situation, what should you do? Worship Jesus. When you're playing around with sin and you want to Stop what do you do? You worship Jesus. When your feelings are hurt by something God says in his word, what do you do? You worship Jesus. When you need hope, endurance, and strength to stay faithful to Jesus, what do you do? You worship him. When you feel uncertain about your future, your job, your kids, your marriage, what do you do? You worship Jesus. Your anticipated future impacts how you live now. You worship Jesus You need to lovingly confront a brother or sister in Christ about sinful choices they've been making. You look to heaven and you worship Jesus. And then what should they do? Worship Jesus. What do you do when God doesn't seem to give you answers? You worship him. What do you do when things get worse? You worship Jesus. He's worthy. Worthy. So what's it look like to worship Jesus in times of struggle and difficulty? What's it look like to do this? I, I want to just take a moment with the people around you and just take a moment and answer and discuss that question, okay? What do you, what's it look like to worship Jesus in times of uncertainty, struggle, suffering, persecution, spiritual complacency? Do that now. I'm going to ask us to do something that's really impossible right now okay and it's to try to get your mind and your wonder to heaven's palace and imagine what you have to look forward to that there will be a day when you along with those living creatures and the elders and we will be around that throne that john sees and so this is an opportunity for us to join in the worship that is already happening in heaven And so this week, when you're wondering, what do I do? What God's people do when things get difficult is we worship Jesus.